0: Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Thank you. The, uh, bless you, sis. The, uh, things that we believe together, family matter, uh, just like the things that we do together on mission matter and the times that we spend together matter in much the same way. The things that we believe together actually matter. Vernon Howell, is likely not a name you're very familiar with. Uh, maybe you are, and if so, boy, uh, way to go on your American history. That's pretty impressive. But uh, Vernon Howell was the leader of a very small offshoot cult from the Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, Vernon Howell believed that he was a prophet in the line of David, and he had gathered about 25 people Around him, who at least to some extent believed the same along with him. And in his belief that he was a prophet in the line of David, he changed his first name from Vernon to David. And furthermore, he not only believed that he was a prophet in the line of David, he believed that, like King Cyrus, who was king of Persia during the Babylonian Empire, uh, King Cyrus released the Jews back to Jerusalem and released them from captivity or from exile. So he also believed that as a prophet in the line of David, that he was sort of in in the way of King Cyrus, where he would deliver his people out of exile. Well, the biblical name for King Cyrus uh, was this name, Koresh. And so Vernon Howell legally changed his name to David Koresh. Ring a little more of a bell? David Koresh was the leader of this very small cult. We, we often, if we think about it, I mean, maybe you don't give much thought to American cults, but uh, it was a pretty small group. It was like 25 people who held themselves up in Waco, and it really all culminated, this uh, group called the Branch Davidian, uh, in a 53-day standoff with the FBI and the ATF, which went horribly wrong, and I'm not here to comment on that. Don't worry. But it was an ugly uh, stain both on American history, but also uh, this sort of exposing picture of the things that we believe together as groups and the impact that these beliefs have. I mean, just think, for the last 30 years, when you thought of Waco, Texas, you thought of crazy people. Now, if it weren't for Joanna and Chip, it would still be that way. (laughs) Now you just think of a whole different brand of crazy. It's like, can we have less shiplap in my life? (laughs) The answer to every question is not more shiplap, right? Uh, I'm not a home designer, but good grief. Like, oh, let me guess. You're going to renovate another house. Let me, oh, shiplap. That's the answer. they give them a whole show on shiplap. I mean, if you have shiplap in your house, no hate on that. I just don't understand how you built an empire on shiplap. Anyway, I'm sure they're great people. The, The power that there is in a small group, and what that group decides, and I say that with great emphasis, what that group decides to believe together can change the world. And we saw the impact that it had in the Branch Davidian, and this absolute madman named David Koresh, who had a whole other laundry list of dysfunctions and ugliness that really drew that heat from law enforcement. But we hold that in juxtaposition with the things that a small group of 11 young men who were untrained and uneducated who came back after the death of Jesus called the disciples. And the power and the impact that the things those 11 chose to believe did to the world. The things that we believe together matter. And as we lean into part four of this series, Becoming Christian, we continue to explore what is it to actually become more Christian. For that, I think we go to Romans chapter 10 today. It will serve us very well in beginning to look at some of the most helpful ideas of what it is to believe together. Because you, you have this group, think, that happens in the Branch Davidian and other, you know a million other cults like it. We can name any number of names. Some of them are uh, more recent, and I've chosen a more inflammatory name so as to not get myself in trouble if I name some other ones that you're thinking of a few of them, I can tell by the look on your face. I'm not saying their names, right? See, isn't this a fun little thing we're doing here? <laughs> Is it a show great restraint and discipline from your friends too? Let's just talk about the other names. Um, <laughs> how can I do that? You see, p- part of the problem with that is then we respond to that with this overcorrection of I'm not going to believe together with anyone. I'm going to have only my own independent thought. I'm going to and I do this in air quotes I'm going to do my own research. And then I'm going to send the YouTube video to all my friends and try to convince them that I did my own research, right? On whatever the topic may be, I'm not picking on any one topic. The topic you're thinking of right now is probably not the one I'm thinking of. Go to Romans chapter 10, if you would, with me. Um, And if you haven't already, uh, scan the QR code. It'll um, help you out a little bit today, I think. Chapter 10, verse 1. Just a really, really quick um, set the stage here, and I will, I will do this poorly and inexhaustively. So forgive me, friends. But this letter, Romans, is written to a people when Rome had been taken over, and all of the Jews who were sort of the mothers and fathers of this new Christian faith had been thrown out of Rome for four years. That's the context for the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans. All the Jews have been thrown out of Rome for four years, And all these filthy Gentiles who have also converted to Christianity have sort of taken over leadership of the local churches in Rome. And so all these little house churches all over Rome, because Constantine hadn't made it the official religion of the day just yet, so it's house churches everywhere. And they're all led by these filthy Gentiles who are uneducated and don't know anything, right? Haven't been raised in in, uh, Jewish training. And then after four years, the Jews were allowed to come back to Rome and they're looking around, they're going, what have you done with our beautiful faith, you unlearned people? And in that whole may you, Paul writes the letter Romans. Okay, again, that wasn't done perfectly and it's not everything. Go down the hole if you want to, it'll serve you well. But this is the context by which Paul writes these words. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God for the people of Israel, the Jews, those who have just come back to Rome, is that they be saved. Which already, they're going, wait wait a minute. We're like God's chosen people, uh, right? I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. Come on. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with him. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God By trying. just The last words in the text are keeping the law. But just end it with trying. (laughs) They try to get right by God by trying. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right. All a people who believe. In him are made right. Misdirected zeal, Paul writes. This is kind of a key idea, one for which religious types like me, chief among sinners, and many of you would be wise to take careful inventory. Because I have never ever in my life heard anybody say, you know what, I think I may have a little misdirected zeal on said topic. Right? I mean, like, have you ever said that? Have you ever heard anybody hold an opinion that they knew was wrong? It's just like, we don't hold opinions if we know they're wrong because we're sure we're always right. I mean, why? what's the point of having an opinion if you don't think it's right? I, I get that, and I, I have lots of opinions, and I'm sure they're all right <laughs> until an eight-year-old proves it wrong. And I go, that eight-year-old is wiser than I am. You see, Paul's conclusion here is that misdirected zeal in the church stems from a lack of understanding of what makes people right with God. And it seems here with the Jews to whom Paul's writing this little section of the letter, the same bad theology was at play in their lives that was at play in the branch Davidian a couple thousand years later this idea that if I just do the right stuff, I will make me right with God. That like somehow I play some part in my rightness with God. Now, full stop, let me pause and let me just say a thing. You, you know our passion as a church for spiritual formation. Um, so let me just say just this little editorial. There's a difference here in my language between rightness and And wholeness. God makes us right with Him by no effort of our own. Don't get the two confused. Now, wholeness, we we cooperate in through the work of the Spirit. Today, we're not talking about wholeness. We'll talk about wholeness in later weeks uh, and every other week ever when you're around us because, like, we just need to be whole in Christ. But this is about rightness. This is about God looking at you and saying, You and me, we're good. You and me, I did it. We're all good. Yeah, but I I'm terrible guy. Yeah, yeah, no, I it doesn't matter. You're right with me. I've made you right. I made you right. You didn't do it. You don't have to do it. I made you right. Now part of the part of the trouble, and I, I, don't go on a tangent, Stu. You have 20 minutes left. Uh, <laughs> The, the, the sad part about this is so many of us walk through our whole lives declaring I am right and never getting whole. And so we walk through life demonstrating our rightness. Well, I'm right with God, but we're a real pain in the butt to everybody in our life. We used to have a saying around disciples. It's still on our tagline. I'm glad it's on the tagline, but is real God, real people, real life. And, and there was this kind of language that you've heard, you know, ad nauseum of, I'm just keeping it real. I'm just being real with you. And, and over the years, and disciples, that became you know, a bit of a pass to be an absolute jerk face to everybody, because at least I'm being authentic, right? Well, I'm just being real with you. It's like, well, you're a real jerk. Like, <laughs> maybe you should really attend to who you really are, because you're really off putting to really everybody. How's that feel for real, uh-huh. Right? And that was just usually me talking to the mirror. (laughs) Just keeping it real. Oh, golly, you should try fake because maybe that would be be better. I don't know. (laughs) No, shouldn't try that. (laughs) To bear in mind the difference between rightness and wholeness, but but sometimes we get the two mixed, and we not that they don't overlap, but we get them mixed up, and we think well because I have to cooperate in my wholeness, then I've also cooperated in my rightness. And God, aren't you so lucky to have me in this equation? (laughs) And he's not like off-put by that. It's not like we serve some insecure God who needs all the credit. But he's saying, you can't do anything to be right with me. And this believing this together is key. Because the Jews in that time actually believed that they were cooperating with their right and in so doing, exhausting themselves and creating a culture of judgment. And it's like, my sin's okay because I'm right with God. Your sin is ugly, and you should really fix that. Ever heard anything like that before? And, And it comes out in all kinds of ways. Like, you know, if you just read this article that I read, which changed my whole mind on the issue, I'm sure you'll find the same conclusion I came to. Oh, you're having relationship trouble? Oh, difficulty raising your kids? You should just be more like me. Everything in my life is going great. My, look at my kids. They turn out awesome. You should just raise your kids like I raise my kids. Have you ever, and I know the thoughts have probably crossed some of our minds. Well, we've been married X number of years. You should just have a marriage like ours. Do you have any idea the kind of burden that puts on a person? The kind of toil and just, ugh, that, that puts on a person? we tell them, you should just be more like me. Or you should just be more like them. And we got radio show, talk show hosts who proclaim the name of Jesus, who say, well, if you just do X and Y, you'll have a great whatever just like me. What? That's not the gospel. The gospel is, I am right in the eyes of God because of what God did yeah. through Christ On the cross. And it's only because of my rightness with God that I would ever be motivated to pursue wholeness. That's why we pursue wholeness, because we know we're already right with God. He did the work. Paul reminds the readers then, and he reminds us now, that Christ has fulfilled the defeating life of dew and introduce the joyful life of trust. This means that all that needs to be done for rightness with God was done by Christ. In the life of the atheist, in the life of the angry, the transgender, the self-righteous, and all the rest of us, Christ has already completed the work on the cross necessary to make us right. Now, we must cooperate with the work of the Spirit to become whole. But we are right. He goes on in verse 5. For Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to its commands. But faith's way of getting right with God says, don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down to earth. And don't say who will go down to the place of dead to bring Christ back to life again. In fact, it says, the message is very close at hand, and it's on your lips, and it's in your heart. I remember in my first pastoral gig, uh, Jen and I came back from our honeymoon and interviewed the very next day at a church to be their youth pastor. And uh, early on in the life of that church, it was one of those uh, experiences where you realize we're going to get great experience here and some awesome stories, and if we're not careful, some wounds as well. So we should stay just long enough to capture some great stories um, and then get out of here. And uh, Jen told me early on in the life of that, we were very young newlyweds, and she said, I will never bring my child in this building. She told me that one day. And I was like, ooh, you're on that birth control, right, love? Um, you're like, she said, I'm not kidding. I will never bring our child in this building. There's something going on here, and none of our children will ever step foot here. So just you just, and you all know my wife. Um, she's not a woman to be argued with or reckoned with. And so uh, I said, great. And then just a couple weeks later, she found out she was pregnant, which was a big surprise because we were not planning kids. Um, I was working full-time at the church for $1,000 a month, and um, this was not 1943. Um, Laughter. I may look that old these days, but it was not that long ago. And uh, so she got pregnant, and she said, you know how that works. These things come in nine months, so you got nine months, better find a gig. And um, God was very good. And our first Sunday at the next church we were on staff at, uh, Isaac was six days old. That's real news. God just kind of, like, works that stuff out. Um, Apparently, God doesn't want to mess with my wife either. Um, So (laughs) I'm not sure that's theologically correct, but... It sure, it sure turned out to be practically correct. But they did this uh, thing there uh, where they brought in this out-of-town um, kind of speaker, evangelist guy because they were going to r- revive this church through evangelism. And the, and the whole idea was we were all going to get sent out in twos and we we're going to go knock on doors in the neighborhood. You're laughing. If you'd lived the same experience and we're going to knock on doors in the neighborhood two by two. And when the person opens the door, here was the question we were trained to ask. And the question was... If you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? I affectionately, uh, forgive me, I don't want to be too unhinged today, but I affectionately call this scaring the hell out of people. Yeah. And that was kind of the idea. Yeah. It's like you start with fear. If you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? And then, uh, you know, then you would talk about the risk of, you know, driving in traffic or, you know, whatever. Uh, That's how Jesus did it, right? Yeah. Facetiously, obviously. He says that. He's joking, people. <laughs> now, I was a young youth pastor, and I was really arrogant, and God had a lot of stuff to work out in me at that point. But, uh, but it just all seemed ridiculous. And when they would always preempt the question at, a, at another training session where I had students with me who I felt like I was sort of shepherding them, and I, I felt like a sense of fatherness, to these students who are hearing from a stage, here's how you reach your friends for Christ. Just start by asking your teenage friend at football practice, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? <laughs> and I'm just like, I mean, just the tone deafness was enough to make me laugh. And so I would usually, when they would ask a question, I would say, I don't know, like the morgue um, or, you know, like an ambulance or, you know, things like that. I didn't last very long in that church. Uh, But but Paul's pretty clear about this, that that is not the conversation. And he's like, listen, this goes way, way back. This, This has been the argument for ages. Let's just figure out who's in and who's out. And then once we make sure that we're the ones who are in, then we're all good then if we want to get whole, that'll kind of be our choice. That's like optional, right? It's this idea of evangelism versus discipleship. And so now that I'm in the crowd and I got my ticket to heaven, now I can decide optionally whether I want to follow Jesus, which is insanity. To think I could be Christian and not follow Jesus. What? What? This is sort of this kind of two-stage thing. And so he's saying, listen, that is not Christianity. And precisely what Paul says is, don't say in your heart, verse 6 and 7, don't say in your heart, will you go up to heaven? And don't say, will you go to the place of the dead? Paul's reminding us of a number of different things here. I'm only going to pick on two, but... this is a multi-layered attack he's doing here theologically. It's pretty rich, and it's pretty deep, and there's at least five things he's going after here, but two of them, one being, just don't get caught up in those arguments. Yeah. It's just not for you to say, right? C.S. Lewis famously said, the doors to hell are locked from the inside out. Mm-hmm. Now, you may hate that. I kind of hate it too, Um it's provocative, and it, there may be some beautiful truth in this concept. But all of this is throwing back to Deuteronomy 30. And if we didn't go back there, we would be remiss. So uh, let me go to Deuteronomy 30, because he's directly quoting Moses. Moses gives sort of his own little sermon on the mount. Uh, and, and in that process of everything going on here, he says the message is very close at hand's, Very close at hand, it is on your lips and it is in your heart. And I hear this this language. The message is close at hand. It's in your heart, it's on your lips. And I'm like, that sounds like Jesus. That sounds like Jesus' language. Like, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom has come near to you. Sounds like the Sermon on the Mount. Well, Moses kind of gives his own little sermon on the mount. And it begins way back in Deuteronomy chapter 29, where he gives a message to Israel. We pick up in in chapter 30. And I just want to encourage you, I I put it in your notes just so you have the text in front of you if you want to dig it up later. But let me just challenge you for just a moment. We're got 10 minutes left here to just pause and close your eyes. And I'm just going to read you this passage of Scripture from Deuteronomy 30. And I I want to challenge you not to figure out what it means. I want to encourage you to just respond to how it makes you feel. Okay? Feelings actually do matter. And I won't make you do it for long, I promise. So those of you who don't like to feel, um, we call you Midwesterners. Welcome to the West Coast. Um, uh, You know, uh, I just want you to respond, how does this text make me feel? Not is it true, not what does it mean, just how does it make me feel? I, I want to read this to you. This is from Moses to Israel. The command I am giving you today is not too difficult for you. It is not beyond your reach. It is not kept in heaven so distant that you must ask who will go up to heaven and bring it down so we can hear and obey. It is not kept beyond the sea so far that you must ask who will cross the sea to bring it to us so we can hear it and obey. No, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and it is in your heart so that you can obey it. Now listen, today I'm giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands, his decrees, regulations, by walking in his way. If you do this, you will live and you will multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you and the land you are about to enter and occupy. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, and if you are drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I warn you now, you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long. You will not live A long, good life in the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. Today, I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now, I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You can make the choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying him, and committing yourself firmly to him. This is the key to your life. And if you love and obey the Lord, you will live long in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. End sermon. You don't have to shout it out loud, but I'd be delighted if you did. How would it make you feel? How does that land? Hope, really, Okay do you feel? You hear that. Anybody? Okay. So no gotcha here. Uh, You feel hopeful. I I, I love that and I, I, I would celebrate that. But this is not the gospel. This is the gospel of try. This is the do right, obey, get it all right, and you'll prosper. Do wrong, you're getting destroyed. These are the options. And this is all they knew. This is the law. Now, is it wrong or is it incorrect? No, of course not. Like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and do it with all your strength, and always follow him and always obey him. Things are going to go well for you. Sure, but it's impossible to actually live it. And so Moses, increasingly with greater passion all the time, is saying, no, Israel, knock it off. Quit worshiping other gods. Quit doing all this. And meanwhile, my belief is that God is in heaven going, I just can't wait to send my son and sort all this out. Because they just can't do it. They can't do it. They need my son, Jesus, and his writing their path. You see, in Deuteronomy, the language is do this. It's a lengthy address, and of course, it starts way back in Deuteronomy 29. It even begins uh, the section I read in verse 11 with, this is not too difficult for you. That's why why you felt hope, okay. Except for, we read all through the Old Testament, and what was it? It was always too difficult for them. And guess what? It's too difficult for me. And it's too difficult for you. See, this is the difference between rightness and wholeness. Being right with God is impossible for us. But once we're declared right through the work of Christ, we can become whole. And becoming whole is not too difficult because you have the power of the Spirit working in you. And as you're increasingly attentive to the Spirit's leading. You don't hear God speak? If you're the type who doesn't hear God speak, I don't mean this with shame and guilt. I just say this to drive home. You better be reading your Bible every day. Not not that Bible is unimportant for people who hear God speak. But if you don't hear God speak on a regular basis, it's it's here. I mean, I don't have the book in my hand. It's right here. But like, read the Scriptures. That's His voice speaking to us. So when Jesus arrives and he gives his sermon on his mount as opposed to Moses' sermon on Moses' mount, Jesus says to them in his sermon, blessed are the poor who realize how bad they need God. That's a different kind of message. Blessed are those who hunger for what is right, not for who do what is right, but for hunger for what is right. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who endure things done to them. What a different gospel from the way to be right with God before. Because in Christ, we're already right. The the sermon on the mount of Christ is not about rightness because he's like, don't worry about rightness. I'm going to make you right. Worry about wholeness. Because you will be made whole when you learn humility. Humility. You will be made whole when you learn to hunger for what is right. You will be made whole when you are poor. Tita tells us all the time, don't pray that we will not be poor in Guatemala. Jesus says you'll always have the poor with us. She goes, we pray for you in your wealth because you never depend on God. She goes, please, don't ever pray that we wouldn't be poor. It's a great gift to us to be poor. Pray that we would experience justice, but don't pray that we would not be poor. Wow. And so all the the groups in our culture and in our city and on your street and maybe in your home, who you, who we, who I have dealt out of rightness with God, because their unrightness is different than our unrightness. We say to them, you are right with God in Christ. You see, they, they look at us and they wonder how it is that we declare ourselves right with God when we harbor anger and rage and greed and vanity and selfishness. And we declare our forgiven in Christ Christ stance or position in spite of our sin, but they are declared wrong with God because of their sin. And this is not some sort of we all get into the family because Christ died for us kind of sermon. Don't be led astray into thinking that. It does matter. But it's, it's this unifying what we believe together could change the world. That without Christ's work on the cross, we are doomed. But because of it, we can all gather together around the central trust that he has finished the fight. And we can now simply live together in a transforming community where we reflect the goodness and the grace of God to each other as we patiently change into the likeness of Christ. Because we declare because we reflect, because we demonstrate, we are right in the eyes of God because of what Christ did, we can now live in a transforming community who becomes whole like Christ. So if there's one thing we all believe together, if there's one thing we all choose to say, at Disciples Church, we're going to place our faith in this. It is that Christ has made us right. Rightness was done by Christ. And so the question now is not what am I saved from, as so many have asked, but what am I saved for? You and me, and the most sinful person on your street, think about her name. See what I did there? We can be saved for a worry free life because of what Christ did, we can be saved for a life free of rage because of what we are in Christ. We can be saved for a life on mission because of Christ. We can be saved for contentment and joy because of what Christ did. We can be saved for generosity and selflessness because of what Christ did. And then Paul closes with these words. And with these words, I'll invite the band to join me. The message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and it is in your heart. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you have been made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in that respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have not heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone tell them without being sent? For the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. May the good news of our lives be the good news to your neighbor and to your cube mate and to your friend at work that you are right in the eyes of Christ if you believe. That only he makes you right. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may his face shine upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.